I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And And we're we're the the Trade Trade Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this week's episode of The Trade Guys, Scott and Bill talk about the upcoming third ministerial meeting of the Trade and Technology Council. They also discuss recent U.S. changes in oil policy in Venezuela and discuss Mexican policy regarding biotechnology and energy. Hi, Trade Guys. Welcome back from Thanksgiving. Hope you both had a nice holiday. Um, Let's go ahead and get started with something where it seems like there was not a lot of motion and now there's a lot of motion at the last minute, which is the upcoming third ministerial of the US-EU Trade and Technology Council. They're meeting here on Sunday. So what do you expect in terms of outcomes? They had a whole bunch of outcomes lined up, mostly agreements on more cooperation, more information sharing on supply chains, things like that. There's been talk of Things that are not fleshed out yet, sort of a sustainability green trade program for which there doesn't seem to be a lot of detail. The excitement, if you will, that Emily was referring to is that it's all being overshadowed by the argument over uh, electric vehicles and the Inflation Reduction Act and the various provisions in the IRA that involve content requirements or final U.S. assembly requirements or bans on minerals in particular or parts and components from China as protectionist, violative of the WTO, and more or less designed to bring the world to a crashing halt, apparently. And this keeps changing form. It keeps morphing. And it it went through several iterations as recently as, I think, Thursday in the president's press conference with French President Macron. To go back one step, the debate on this has changed a little bit, too, and that's complicated the landscape. The original debate came from foreign automobile producers in Europe, Japan, and Korea primarily. And uh, governments, those same governments saying, this is protectionist, it violates our WTO obligations, and by the way, it disadvantages our companies. And I think basically they're right about that. All counts. I think you'll find a legal consensus that the law now does violate our obligations. To me, it's been an interesting episode because these things come up a lot in the Congress from uh, over the years. Normally, the administration of the moment, any party opposes them on the grounds that they violate our international obligations. And that usually ends up with them being withdrawn or compromised. And the usual compromise is the addition of waivers or exceptions that mollify the people that are complaining. That didn't happen in this case. The administration went along with it, which tells me that either they were MIA when the debate was going on, or that they had no appreciation of how this was going to blow up. I certainly didn't. And now it has. But in addition to blowing up, it's taken on a more complex set of objections because what the governments are now saying, particularly the European governments, is that it's not just the protectionist elements of the IRA. It's the massive subsidies that are going to create an incentive for foreign companies, foreign automobile producers in particular, to move to the United States, both to comply with the content requirements, but also to take advantage of the subsidies and tax credits and benefits that are in the bill. And the Europeans, therefore, have stumbled into an awkward debate. The American answer to that has been, well, you should do the same thing. Develop your own subsidies because that will accelerate the green transition. It'll accelerate the EV transitions in Europe. It'll accelerate it here. 
there's some people in Europe, Macron has been one, that have said, right, let's do that. And there's been discussion about have buy Europe programs and subsidy programs to match the Americans. At the same time, other people, a little bit to my surprise, have pointed out, first, they may not have enough money to do that. So it might not be a successful effort, number one. Number two, it's a little awkward to accuse the Americans of breaking all the rules and then go ahead and break all of them yourself. In a way, I was encouraged, I think, by Commissioner Kersteger, who said that, you know, we, we shouldn't do this because it's wrong. And I thought this conflicts with my fundamental principle that there's no rule against hypocrisy in trade. And she is saying maybe there should be a rule against hypocrisy in trade and the Europeans should be the ones that employ it. So good on her. But all of this was thrown into a state of confusion on Thursday in his joint press conference with Macron when President Biden announced that there had been glitches in the law and that he thought that we could accommodate the European concerns and that there was no intent to discriminate against our friends and allies. He didn't explain how they were going to do that. And it made more amusing by the fact that Commissioner Breton, the EU Commissioner for the Internal Market, subsequently announced that he was not going to show up at the TTC meeting because not enough time was going to be devoted to this particular issue, which suggests that he wasn't paying attention to the press conference. So the Europeans, or some of them anyway, are still upset. There are a lot of skeptics, including me, that Biden can deliver on what he said. I think the lawyers will say the statute does not give the Treasury Department which has to write the regulations, enough uh, leeway to, you know, invent waivers out of thin air, which is what they would have to do. So it looks like at this point, Biden's promise could mean everything because he's the president after all. And when the president wants something, somebody usually figures out a way to do it. Or if the lawyers are right, it could be nothing. I think attention is going to turn not so much to the TTC, although this will get in the way of a favorable outcome there because you're going to spend a lot of their time talking about this and how to do what Biden has said he is open to doing, which will be complicated. I think inevitably, at the end, Congress comes into play. I don't think the administration can do this by itself. Congress will need to change the statute. And that has produced even more confusion because you've got some people Senator Warnock being one, who's already proposed legislation to extend the time period for compliance. Warnock has one or I think two now battery plants either in Georgia or on the way in Georgia. So you can understand why he did that. You've got other uh, members of Congress, including Senator Wyden, saying, no, no, the law needs to be enforced the way it was written. All that said, all that confusion aside, the outcome, I think, is kind of obvious, which is what they'll end up doing, I think, is leave the rules the way they are, but create more time to comply. And nobody will like that because for the Europeans, it does not solve the problem of principle. It does not solve the problem of subsidies. For organized labor, which wants all the conditions to kick in immediately, it goes too far. The irony of that, particularly I think the irony of the labor view, is that if you give more time to comply that will probably be a greater incentive for European companies to move here because it gives them more time to figure out what to do and how to integrate their supply chains into U.S. parts and components. So it will sound like a compromise, but it actually is one that will probably play into the American administration's hands. Bill's right about the likely landing zone for all this controversy. My own view is that this is, this is only the start of controversy for some fundamental reasons. Number one is that even the most enthusiastic proponents of electric vehicles and other green technology will agree that this will require subsidies to get going. 
And in trade rules, one of the things that's been the most durable and long-lasting among international agreements is the ban on subsidies that export subsidies of any sort for industrial goods. So you've got you're starting with a fundamental conflict between trade rules, which are built for efficiency and consumer welfare and equal treatment of the parties, which said don't subsidize. But in order to have this technology manifest itself, the subsidies are required. So that's going to be a problem that we may finesse this time, but is not going away. Second, there, there are a number of these initiatives that we're moving forward where the underlying cost structure is going to have a geopolitical effect. In this case, Europeans are facing extraordinarily high energy costs because of, mostly because of cutting themselves off from Russian gas. The whole German economic or, or industrial competitiveness in the past decade has been based on inexpensive Russian gas, principally Russian natural gas, fueling the industry that has relatively high labor costs, but they're selling relatively expensive goods. So you sell high-end cars to the world, for instance. You are competitive at doing so because one of your key elements, the cost of running your industry, is relatively low from an energy standpoint. Energy costs are, are high in Europe now. So that's shifting it, and that's a backdrop to anything. So that, that's the second point, is that we've got to change circumstances that is likely to drive industri industries to consider relocating out of Europe and into places like the United States, which we're facing higher energy costs too, but it's not nearly the increase that Europe's facing. So that's that's a backdrop to all this whole thing that is not going to get easier. The third point is that this is one more move in sort of emphasizing geopolitics over efficiency. We got to open markets. We got to free trade because of the efficiency gains, which creates growth in economies, which creates higher consumer welfare, which has a lot of benefits to it. And we know what it looks like when you let geopolitics govern trade. It was the 19th century, basically, in the imperial trading blocks. There's a consumer welfare hit, and there's a number of downsides to this. But almost everything we do these days, whether it's talk of friendshoring or talk of the energy transition or dealing with the effect of sanctions, we're emphasizing geopolitics. And, and look, yes, there is higher geopolitical risk, but the idea is not to eliminate all risk. Okay. The, element, the idea is to take risks that make sense to take. And so this is, this is one that for those three reasons, I think this is just the beginning of a long, long train of these kinds of incidents. And I'm not sure what the policy is going to be to get us out of it. Well, I wouldn't froth at the mouth quite that much on the last point. I think you're right. That's what's happening. And we've talked about this before. Uh, co companies and countries are reassessing the risk of doing business in complicated locations, uh, particularly China and obviously Russia. And we all have a new word, thanks to COVID, which is resiliency, which really means how do we defend ourselves against choke points and sudden either politically inspired or natural disaster inspired breakdowns in the supply chain. You know, earthquake closes a factory and all of a sudden you're up the creek because that's your only source of a key part. How do we build around that? And what that means, though, is exact, Scott's exactly right. It means a decline in efficiency. Because if you've got supply chains that were developed based on price, quality, and delivery, and you've got good supply chain managers that have minimized the price, maximized the quality and the delivery, if suddenly you, inter you interject a non-economic variable into the equation and say, all right, now you have to factor this in as well, of course you're going to get a less efficient outcome. And you're right about that. The question that companies have to face is, is in the long run, is that a cost worth paying in order to provide more security for our supply chains and more certainty of production uh, over the long term. 
No, I agree with that, Bill. And, and you make the point that it's companies that face this. Look, governments keep accounts. And so we talk about trade deficits and investment flows on a, on a country basis because we do have national accounts. But supply chain decisions are made by firms. And in fact, exchange in general is done through firms, not through countries. So the United States really doesn't have a supply chain. Okay. All its industrial firms do. And it's those firms' decision-making that really affects it, which is probably the right place for that to, to be anyway, because they're the ones who have, have, have the skin in the game. In a market economy. Yes. Now, in China, the decisions are made differently. Yeah, sure. Agree. Well, it seems like based on this conversation, the EV tax credit is likely to overtake some of the other issues in the TTC this weekend. At least that's my bet. But let's turn now to the Western Hemisphere. Last week, the United States made some fairly significant changes to its oil policy in Venezuela. What changed? There was an Office of Foreign Assets Controller, OFAC, which is a Treasury Department entity, provided a basically humanitarian license to produce petroleum products, specifically crude oil and petroleum from Venezuela. They licensed an American headquartered firm, Chevron, to do that. It really, Chevron was prepared and probably well-positioned to do it, but it didn't really matter what the firm is. The key is that the U.S. Treasury Department has licensed the activity. It's not going to make a lot of difference to the world balance on uh, energy supplies. It'll probably make an important difference to lives in Venezuela, which have been quite dependent on energy for a number of years, and their ability to produce and sell it has has declined pretty precipitously. So that's what was done, basically. And OFAC uh, licenses Chevron to essentially get the oil fields working again and, and offer some uh, additional support, technological support, to the PDVSA, which is the, which is the Venezuelan state oil company. We know it as, as CITCO here, but PDVSA will, will be involved at some point to the extent they're functioning. In any case, that's, that's the decision. And I read about that. I, I obviously don't object to more supply and more oil or humanitarian efforts in general. But I did find myself wondering what the scorecard is. Because now it's okay to get oil from Venezuela, but not from Canada. Or not from Alaska. So I guess there's good oil and bad oil. I just don't really understand why one is the other. There are also good and bad failed states in Latin America. So it's okay to help the poor in Venezuela. But helping the poor in Nicaragua, now that's beyond the pale. So that's what they've done. I'm having trouble squaring that circle. Well, Nicaragua doesn't have any oil. Uh, well, yes, they, they do export sugar, and that was pretty important to them. And it seemed like we had a very strong human rights case for kicking the puppy. I just don't know why. Apparently, the, the, the license in question was granted after there was a negotiation between Maduro, the, the Maduro government in Venezuela, and, and the opposition to set up a system for humanitarian relief for some of the people that are suffering the most. So I think the U.S. rationale was that there's been some progress on humanitarian relief in Venezuela and that it's appropriate to recognize that, that progress. As Scott said, it's not a big step. Chevron, which has been there, it's, it's not a new arrival, but it's been handicapped by the lack of licenses in the recent years. I think their share was something like 15,000 barrels a day, which is not huge, but it will restart some things, probably start some, some money flowing uh, in, in the direction of Venezuela. Let's hope it gets to the people who, who are in greatest need. That's yeah, the, I, I speak as someone in, uh, who used to run an organization called USA Engage, which is the organization of companies that always opposed unilateral sanctions on, regardless of, of 
who it was against. But we just thought that, that unilateral sanctions are a lose-lose policy. Uh, you give up the U.S. market share. And because there are other actors out there and other markets out there, uh, you don't achieve your objectives. The target, uh, the target country will just go somewhere else. They keep doing what they're doing. So we don't achieve what we're trying to achieve. And our companies lose out in the process. Now, if you can multilateralize the sanctions, then the chances of, of both achieving your objective and, and actually, uh, you know, not disadvantaging your businesses because you're disadvantaging all their competitors as well, that it goes way up. And I have to say, you know, the Obama administration and now the Biden administration with Russia have done quite good jobs of, of the latter, of trying to bring everybody into the sanctions tent from the beginning. Because, you know, when I was doing this in the Obama era, when the initial Russia sanctions, when they went into Crimea, a lot of them involved oil because the U.S. oil companies were heavily involved in Russian projects. And when you talk to the oil companies, I mean, they sort of understood the problem. What really irritated them the most was not that they were going to be cut out of the market, but that their European competitors were not. If, if Total and E&I and the other and Shell, you know, had to adhere to the same sanctions, that's okay because then we're all on the same playing field. But if you wipe us out and leave them in, that's fundamentally unfair. So there's a lot to be said for multilateralizing these things. I agree with all that. But I'll tell you what, if I were Canada, I'd, I'd be wondering. In fact, I'd probably be asking the administration, it's like, wait a minute, Saudi Arabia and Venezuela are okay, but we're not. Well, wait uh, a minute. What, what are we not okay? I mean, you're just talking we, about- we, 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 I was thinking the, uh, the Keystone XL pipeline. Yeah, but that's just one. We, we get oil from the Canadians. By rail, yes. Well, and, oil is oil. And, uh, you know, you're just well, being cranky about the pipeline. You'll get, well, no, <laughs> you're going to get nasty emails now from the environmentalists, Scott. Realize all, all I'm suggesting is, uh, you know, if uh, we probably ought to make a distinction between friends and, and opponents here, and, and Canada being a NATO ally and a longtime ally of the United States probably deserves a little more consideration we're giving them. So they certainly think that. No question. Well, let's talk now about our other neighbor, Mexico. We've discussed recently a couple of issues over biotech and corn. There are also some persistent energy issues. So what's going on now with Mexico? Well, there are two distinct issues here. One is a trade issue. The other is an investment issue. So the trade issue is really one of, I think, food safety standards, which are often called sanitary and phytosanitary standards. And there is a discussion in Mexico proposals to ban the entry of U.S. corn. Almost all is genetically modified and has been for, I think, close to 30 years in terms of the, the way the corn has been, the hybrids have been developed, the technology used to produce them, which uh, reduces pesticide use and has a number of benefits as well as crop yields and has been exported to the world for a long time. Well, not Europe, but elsewhere in the world, including Mexico for some period of time. There is apparently an issue being raised by the president of Mexico that somehow that native yellow corn in Mexico is somehow being harmed by the imports of uh, U.S. corn. And I haven't seen any evidence to that to support that. Clearly, food standards need to be based on science. That's what we all agree, including both the governments of Mexico and the United States. And the, the basic standard is that there's reasonable certainty of no harm. So it's unclear to me, has anybody established that there's harm here to either another plant or to to humans. And I just haven't seen the evidence. So it'll be important. What it will really do is damage the food supply in Mexico. Uh, it'll be downside for American corn exporters 
who may or may not be able to find other markets in short term. Certainly, it's very efficient to move commodities like corn to Mexico. They've done it for years. So there'll be an interruption, which is a commercial problem. But most of the corn that is grown and exported to Mexico goes into feeding livestock. And so what you really do is have less meat in supermarkets and less, say, animals. It's going to be the Mexican people, the average consumer, who's going to probably suffer most from this. So I hope they get it straightened out. And, and it's, But it's not clear to me what exactly the harm is that is somehow part of the problem. That's the trade issue. The, the investment issue has to do with the USMCA provisions on the energy investment. And it's very difficult sector to invest in because of the broad state ownership of the energy sector in Mexico. There have been some permits to U.S. and Canadian energy companies, but not, it's not been a consistent or transparent process. There is the one area of investment in North America that still has an arbitration clause, and so that's probably the next step. But the Commerce Minister was in uh, Washington yesterday to discuss this, and uh, it's a concern of both U.S. investors and Canadian investors in the energy sector. You can't produce oil without developing the, the resource. It takes money. It takes investment to do it. So I would think that, that the Mexican state industry would have a stake in this as well. Yeah, I don't have a lot to add to that. I think Scott's nailed it very well. We just have a series of ongoing disputes with Mexico. Most of them end up getting resolved, actually. Some of them have been taken to the dispute settlement mechanism. A lot of the labor ones have, and, and we've won a lot of them. And the Mexicans appear to be complying with them. I think there are always efforts to not have to go that that far. And that's what's going on in this case. The pre- Mexican president, uh, Lopez Obrador, uh, has said that he was willing to uh, not apply the GMO ban to yellow corn, which is most of it coming in the United States. We'll see what that means. He has long had a desire to effectively renationalize the petroleum industry in, in uh, Mexico. His predecessor, uh, particularly his immediate predecessor, moved in the opposite direction to try to open Pemex up to uh, foreign, particularly U.S. investment. And Amelo is trying to claw that back, so we'll see what happens. The other more recent, the more immediate thing that's going to come out soon will be the case that the Mexicans and the Canadians have brought against the United States on the auto rules, which I think we discussed in a previous episode on whether you could roll up the uh, parts and components rule. And the Mexicans and the Canadians jointly filed a complaint against us, accusing basically Ambassador Lighthizer at the time of unilaterally reinterpreting that provision of the USMCA agreement to the U.S. advantage and claiming that he had gone beyond what was inconsistent with what had been agreed to. Panel report is finished. Uh, It's been sent to the two parties. It has not been released publicly. The publicly reported rumor is that Canada and Mexico won and the U.S. lost. I don't know if that's true or not. But we should be finding out, if not this month, then next month. And that will be a very interesting question because uh, this is one where the Biden USTR said that basically if, if we lose, it will you know, undermine the whole agreement. Well, if we lose, the question is, are they going to comply? And you know, we've seen in the thing we started off this conversation about in the EV tax credit, the Biden folks are sort of thumbing their nose at the WTO. We will see next month if they're going to thumb their nose at the USMCA as well. I hope not. You know, when you lose, you're supposed to comply. Oh, that's the idea. Now, the idea is, of course, you, you always have the most disputes with your biggest partners. And Canada's long time our number one trading partner. Mexico's the number three for a very long time. And even back before the NAFTA was signed, those were their positions. So kind of reminds me of that old Tin Pan Alley song. You always hurt the one you love, the one you shouldn't hurt at all. 
Well, that's a good note to end on. Thank you both for your thoughts today and look forward to uh, next week's episode. While we're feeling the love. Exactly. Yes. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.